Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. Welcome to this special edition of the Classic Album Club podcast. In this episode, Phil Alexander will host a roundtable discussion of the music and legacy of one of the greatest rock bands in the world, Led Zeppelin. He'll be joined by Dave Brolin, editor of the book Led Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin, journalist and author Mark Blake, and Deborah Bonham, sister of legendary drummer John Bonham. Deborah, let's start with you because... One of the things that's happened this year uh, is the unveiling of a permanent memorial to John in Redditch. It's a gigantic 2.5-tonne statue created by Mark Richards. Mm -hmm. It was unveiled in May on what would have been John's uh, 70th birthday. Tell us Mm -hmm. how that came about. It started with um, a couple of fans in Redditch that really felt it was time that Redditch had something to, you know, um, acknowledge the achievements of their famous son, I guess. Um, and it, they started a group to uh, try to fundraise. And I, I sort of watched this happening and, and, and I could see they were struggling a bit. It, you know, they didn't quite know how to make it happen. So I got involved. And uh, anyway, cut a long story short, I managed to raise uh, the money and double what we needed. I approached uh, Mark Richards, an ama- I mean, really amazing sculptor. I, I just knew when we, we sort of met that this was going to be it. We had an idea of how we wanted it to look. The essence of John was the energy of him playing the drums, you know. So we had to find uh, something that would portray that. So um, we found this photograph, which is an iconic photograph that we used, and Mark interpreted it absolutely amazingly. Um, And so that's how it sort of came about. And, um, you know, I just thought it was really fitting for his 70th birthday. And the remainders of of the the money, we, we have linked in with Teenage Cancer Trust, We've set up uh, Teenage Cancer Trust West Midlands with Teenage Cancer Trust um, in John's name, and that will monies will will continue to raise money for them. But we gave them a large donation, and that will help uh, you know help kids with cancer throughout that area, including the Redditch area. So yeah, that's how um, that's what's happened. Well, it's, it's marvelous stuff, and I have to say, I mean, it really is an impressive. Um, I mean, it's it, it looks gigantic, and it was unveiled. It, it's, at night as well, wasn't it? It was literally, it was well, like... Well, yeah. It, it was, I mean, just tell me why, because it is... Well, you know Led Zeppelin. It, there's a, always a circus around Led Zeppelin. <laughs> um, you know, and, and that's good. But it would become, I felt, and, and I, I was working with a de- very dear friend of mine, and I wanted him to be there. And uh, I, I wanted it to be about John more than it become about, well, are Led Zeppelin reforming? Oh, all the, all the guys have got together. Or is this a reformation? You know, all of yeah, that yeah. stuff. Inevitably, that's what would have happened. And Ajahn was quite an unassuming guy in, in private. I mean, I know he got the name of, the, of being relatively, or let's say more than relatively raucous <laughs> on tour. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, he was very unassuming for a lot of his friends that knew him. And um, there was always the mystique about Led Zeppelin as well, you know. Of course. And I, and I just felt that if we just let this appear in the night, I mean, you know, there was a few of us there to, to make sure it was done and we had a little toast of champagne and... And I, but I thought if we just do that and it just appears, there's none of that pomp and there's none of that, it suddenly becomes all about Led Zeppelin. It, it, this was really about John. 
Yeah, um, yeah. So that's that's why we did it that way. And then, of course, this week we've had the uh, the official event. We waited until September to do the official event uh, for the town. You know, so that that worked out really well. No, I mean I, I applaud you for uh, for all of it, really. Uh, now, obviously, John's voice is sadly missing from the band's official book, uh, Led Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin. But Dave Rowland, all the other three band members have contributed to the book with a set of annotations, uh, which uh, sort of sit at the back of the book because it's it's fo- you know it's photographed uh, throughout most of it. But there's 20 pages of really fantastic annotations that kind of re relive their experience through 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 the band can you explain how the idea of the book came about and also how the process worked when it came to collating the thoughts of jimmy robert and and john paul jones the book came about i'd worked with them on all the reissue albums that had books and it became clear there's a (laughs) never-ending stream of zeppelin books and it seemed like a good idea that the band would put together one that they were happy with that they had some involvement with and I, I would hear comments that they were never asked about any of the books that were um, produced um, and so we suggested it and they said yes and we had a, a rough outline of the, the framework existed because they'd already chosen pictures that they liked for the various projects and um, and then we, we just put them all together and filled in the gaps and let them choose, really. And they supplied all the pictures they had as well from both the band, their own archive and personal pictures, and uh, the record company. They each had a, an idea of how they would like a book to be. Um, Robert very much wanted it to show what it was like for them in all aspects. And Jimmy wanted to show the, the sort of dynamics of, of the performances through the years and and the sort of rapid growth, which I think the the first part of the book is really quite, it's one of the biggest parts because there's so many changes and you see them playing in a pub one day and in a big arena the next and then back to a pub. And, you know, for the first few years it was like that. And John Paul Jones, you know, very much was about the obviously the rhythm section being uh, well represented because just the nature of rock photography back then was the focus was on the, the front man and and we managed to I think tick all the boxes and when it came to the annotations um, yeah we just sat and talked like a conversation and and the idea was that rather than try and tell the history or contradict previous um, tellings of it was to just look at the pictures and and whatever that sparked off sometimes it was directly about the image and other times it was just a recollection from that period. And what was lovely is how um, John Bonham was very present in all the conversations and the picture choice. Mm-hmm. And it really was... Um, and it, I mean, it was quite... I felt quite um, privileged to, to, to be involved in that side of things. And, and we did get a quote. We looked through the various interviews, and at the end of his, his um, piece that we've quoted from, he said... Uh, He's talking about the early days. The, um, the, each of the band members at the beginning of the book wrote a piece about how they felt when they just got together. They had no idea what was going to come and what that felt like. And we found a, a quote from John which sort of perfectly summed it up. And he said, um, uh, I don't think I had any idea the group was going to achieve what it did. You could tell it was going to be a good group, you know, not to be flash about it, but I am. 
and it just seemed, you know, and, and from the others as well, they were seemed really proud of what they'd done and they should be flash about yeah. it. Yeah. Well, I agree. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it, we'll come on to discuss exactly how, how things have, uh, I mean, why the legacy is so important and how... how their music continues to resonate uh, in a short while. But obviously among the hundreds of shots in the book, uh, the band's manager, Peter Grant, of course, features as well. And uh, Mark Blake, you've been working on a book with uh, the Grant family, which is out on October the 25th. Uh, let's discuss Peter's role in the Led Zeppelin story, because you do sense that without his involvement, things may have been slightly different. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he got them paid. <laughs> a lot. In cash, in bags of cash. Um, he looked after them, and I think... He had 10 years on the road himself as a road manager and a bouncer and so on, driving other groups around, Chuck Berry, Jim Vincent, Mike and Bernie Winters he started with as well. You can't forget them. And I think he brought 10 years' worth of experience to the band, you know, and that was his thing. He'd worked with Don Arden, who wasn't entirely honest with his artists, and his idea was if you look after the artist, everything else will follow. If you look after them, let them do the music, let me take care of everything else. If they can concentrate on the music, then, you know, you could have potentially have huge success with this. Yeah, I mean, I suppose he favoured what is known as an artist-first approach, which which in this day and age sounds very normal. But but to be really fair, that, that is very revolutionary in itself for, for that particular period of time, for Absolutely. the late 60s. Absolutely. You know, there, there's no doubt about that. We'll come on, Mark, and talk a bit more about the kind of revolution instigated by Peter uh, as far as the business side is concerned with Led Zeppelin uh, later on. Um, but, of course, he accompanied Jimmy Page to New York when the band had completed uh, their first album, and between them they secured a deal like no other with Atlantic Records. And we should point out that that first self-titled album also sounded like nothing else when it was released in the UK on January the 12th, 1969, and two months later in America. And that kind of brings us on to a discussion of some of the more specific aspects of the Led Zeppelin legacy. And uh, as well as our live guests, uh, you'll be hearing from some other famous fans as we go along. The first uh, theme we're going to discuss is the first time you heard Led Zeppelin. And here, with his memory of that from uh, Thin Lizzy and now Black Star Riders, is Scott Gorham. The first time I remember... Uh Led Zeppelin, I think I was 17 years old, and sitting outside in a car uh, outside of one of my friend's house, uh, house in uh, Glendale, California, and this song came on, this riff. I thought, oh my God, who's that? That sounds amazing. That sounds incredible. Every part of that song I was hooked on. Interesting stuff there from Scott. And uh, obviously that leads me on to a very simple question, which I'd like to uh, ask you all, starting with you, Deborah. And it's an odd one, really, because obviously you grew up around John. But when was the first time you heard Led Zeppelin? And what did you think of it at the time when you first heard them? The first time I actually heard Led Zeppelin was when I went to see them. I mean, I... No, wait a minute. I heard the I heard the record first of all, so I must have been about six or seven, and you know, I, uh, it was my big brother's. But, but apart from that, I used to have all my little friends come round, and we'd have Dazed and Confused on, and I used to make them dance like crazy when the guitar really got going. <laughs> was, Impressive stuff. You know, yeah, well, you know, I think I think I had the, the startings of Led Zeppelin play at my sixth birthday party, you know, because <laughs> John and Robert played, and I, I vaguely remember somebody telling me that Jimmy turned up. So, you know, it was quite a hip party I had when I was six. <laughs> but um, 
I then went to see them again at the, you know, the Birmingham Odeon, which was such a great place. It, they, they played the Town Hall and the Odeon. And I guess I was getting to about eight or so then. Um, I think they got Led Zeppelin two out um, and uh, it just blew me away. And it really then I thought, I want to do this. I right. want to do this. And I've spent the rest of my life trying. <laughs> it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be, let me tell you. <laughs> but um, no, that's, I mean, it just blew me away. And, um, you know, as I've grown older, I mean, I've, I've lived with Led Zeppelin as a staple in my diet. And there's probably not many days that, that go by where I don't play some Led Zeppelin. Um, I know that sounds cheesy, but, you know, I, I, I play it a lot because... Sometimes I just get blown away by it, and I just think, "Bloody hell, how that? I mean, how?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. it's it's phenomenal stuff. Um, yeah, and specifically as well with with your brother, very much as, as as the engine room. You know, the driving force, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, not to not to disparage anybody else. I mean, it, it is the four absolutely that, that, that created this, but but it is absolutely. that thing. That, you know, he 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 obviously has that power, which I think all all, all the other three guys do talk about in, in real reverential terms you know without a doubt but uh, i mean also uh, with that power he could restrain it as well and there would be um a lot of jazz motown influences in his playing as well uh, yes. which s sort of brought me really into listening to a lot of those those uh those artists you know and their drummers and and sort of really it was for me it's always been about the soul that, that led zeppelin brought Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, in their in their style of music, it was incredibly soulful. Everyone was playing from the heart. So, you know, that that was a real big trigger for me. Even it got me as an eight year old, as a six year old, even it got me it straight into my core, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's a hard thing to live up to, you know, when you decide to then go into the music industry yourself, which I did. Um I really wished I'd had a manager like Peter Grant, I can tell you. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think he was such a staunch ally, you know, that's the that's yeah. the main thing, really. And especially back then, you know, that with what was going on, you know, in, in the music world, it isn't that different now, to be honest. It's just done corporately now. Yeah, less mobsters yeah. around, unfortunately. But um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's, let's move on rather diplomatically there. And uh, Mark, <laughs> yes. um, you and I both grew up really as Led Zeppelin's career was effectively coming to an end. Yeah. So we kind of have very different memories from from the memories that that uh, that you know Deborah has in terms of, of of age and all that kind of stuff in terms of seeing seeing a band so young and, and all the rest of it and of course we weren't related to any of them as well um, but um, <laughs> but, do, but do you remember the first time you heard Led Zeppelin well it would have been the, probably the top of the pops theme I guess in some ways I knew that but I remember and I was thinking about this earlier is that when physical graffiti came out I would have been about 10 and then I think it was when I was about 11, somebody, his older brother had a copy and they played me Cashmere. And I would have been about 10 at the time, maybe 11. And I couldn't take it in. It was like it, I couldn't make sense of it because it was so unlike anything I'd heard before. I think I found it quite intimidating, actually. I couldn't get over the Robert Plant's voice, which to me was unlike anything I'd heard before. And and probably that drum sound and that sort of that huge orchestral thing because there were no points of reference in pop music. If I was listening to Mud or Slade or Sweet or whatever was in the charts around that time, this was so removed from that. And I kind of didn't go back to it again for another couple of years and then it started to make sense. But yeah. it was actually 
It wasn't physical graffiti, it was just the one song, Kashmir. By the end of it, I felt sort of slightly exhausted, <laughs> it, it was, which I think is a great thing, you know, that's, that, for music to have that impact on you is incredible, you know, and I still look back to that now. I still, when I hear it now, or things like In My Time Are Dying, I still, I have to sort of brace myself. <laughs> it's powerful yeah. stuff. No, I mean, I agree with you. I mean, that sense of being completely overwhelmed, I mean, for mm. me, it was hearing the immigrant song. Um, mm. You know, I bought a copy of three from a shop in Blackheath. Uh, sorry, not Blackheath. It was uh, Bexley Heath called LP's. Great name, <laughs> of course. And I took it home largely because of the sleeve. I make no bones about that. And obviously it had been out for a number of years. But yeah. I put that track one, side one on. Mm. And I literally just remember turning around going, what is this? Yeah, And that's in and out quick, though, Immigrant Song, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. But it is so vicious. And I was yeah. like, you know, I mean, I actually, I mean, if you ask my mum now, She'll tell you she, she remembers the moment exactly because I remember turning around going, Mum, I don't know what this is. And she turned around and she goes, Son, we used to call this underground music. She didn't sound like a man, I hasten to add. But, um, but, uh, she, and she still doesn't. But Dave, what, what about you? Um, I, I think like Mark, it was top of the pops and I was familiar with the music. My older brothers would play it. But I was more sort of drawn to the album covers because probably... Oh, you've always been a visual guy. I've been a visual guy. Yeah, yeah. But... But actually, over the years of working with people who'd seen Zeppelin and talking about them live and, you know, how you can't understand unless you'd seen them, seeing them at the O2 yeah. was unlike anything I'd seen, any gig. And, you know, it was big and it's the O2 and it's not the first arena gig I'd been to. But the anticipation of how it was going to go, like, I really felt it, like, before and then... It's still, my ears were ringing the day after, which doesn't normally happen at a gig anymore. And I just remember, like, it took my breath away. I think that's my sort of hearing Led Zeppelin for the first, properly. It felt like that's how you should hear them. Well, I, I mean, I agree with you. I thought what was stunning about the O2, I mean, two things, actually. One was the incredible risk. Because everyone just went, oh, Led Zeppelin are playing, and, you know, fine. You know, so, I mean, obviously the excitement was palpable, the demands for tickets was off the scale and what have you. But for them to go out and play in that way with really no warm-up and no nothing, mm. it could have been, it could have gone horribly wrong after all this time. So I was stunned about, you know, how, how it felt and how, how it was. But also what I was absolutely stunned about was the intimacy of the interplay as well. Mm. It was, well they it all was crowded round each other. Absolutely they? crowding yeah. round Jason, in fact, mm. yeah. and playing off each other in a way. Mm. I think we've forgotten that in the modern world. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. we're so used to seeing bands playing, as you say, arena shows, but it's like going to watch a ginormous video. Mm. And I think looking how they were on stage then and looking through all the pictures from day one, it's very much like that. And, and John Paul Jones said, you know, he wanted to almost be under the symbols to hear and they were very much playing off each other and and that obviously translated to vinyl as well but it all stemmed from that and that closeness and just playing off each other yeah absolutely i mean De deborah how did you feel about the the, the o2 because it must have been an incredibly emotional night for it's, you it, it certainly was i mean you know uh jason and i are very very close and uh you know, he's stepping into his dad's seat, you know, mm. which, which if for, for anyone would be an incredible thing to, to have to do. To get it as right as Jason did, to bring that spirit, but, a little, but also he brought himself, which was great. But more, I think, exactly what you said, the, to actually go out there after all those years, I think I was in that state of, oh, goodness, are they going to, 
are they really going to pull this off? But, but knowing them the way I know them, you know, I, it, it, it wasn't really a doubt in my head. I, I knew that they would bring it, and they'd bring it. What, what got me was the amount of panache and style they brought it with. The old Led Zeppelin, the young guys, the strutting across the stage, the, the, the fantastic phenomenon that was Led Zeppelin then, had grown and, and it, it, it was something different, um, but it had that same power. And I thought it was beautifully done. I thought they, they weren't trying to pretend to be the old days. This was them now. And I thought that was fantastic and, and all power to them. I, I was incredibly emotional. I think John would have thought it was just amazing. Me and my mom sat there and, and my sister-in-law, Pat, with absolute beams on our faces. You know, it was, uh, it was tremendous. It, it, it is one of those things, as you say, that the, the it was genuinely heroic and actually in a moment mm. of rare boastfulness, actually, I think, I think the final quote in, in Led Zeppelin by Led Zeppelin is actually from, from Jimmy. Uh, about that night, actually, and he just says, "We were magnificent, absolutely magnificent." Yeah, and they were. and and I think that is the best summing up, really, of that. And I, I think again, the textures in the sound, as you say, the material was familiar, but it was a new interpretation it of was, that material as well. They were they were just so incredibly cool for a start off. You know, they just presented themselves all these years later and to deliver that it was stunning absolutely now let's move on to really i suppose our second theme of the uh, of, of this uh, episode really which is uh, uh, the fact that led zeppelin's music really does draw on a number of different influences here's another one of their famous fans discussing this this is mike kerr from royal blood a band to whom jimmy page presented the best british group award at the brits in 2015 they weren't the only band to kind of borrow so shamelessly almost from the from American music, but to have such heavy blues influence, but but still really make it their own, I think was amazing, really, because essentially, you know, that's what they they were. They were, a, you know, a really really heavy blues band, and that could so easily go wrong and sound like a rip a rip off, you know. For music, for moving music forward, I think that's essential. Where you look, you look at something that you love, and instead of taking it and and stealing it, you kind of borrow from it and you work out where you fit into it. And I think Zeppelin did that perfectly. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Deborah, let's come back to you and discuss mm. uh, the music that Led Zeppelin made, but something that you touched upon earlier when we were talking, which is really the music that John loved when he was growing up. What music yeah. shaped him? And who were the musicians that he really looked up to? I think, really, the the first music that really shaped him were the Beatles. Um, right. My mum took him and my other brother, Michael. There was only two years between them, but mum took them as, as young guys to see the Beatles live. She said it was incredible because all, she, all it was was this massive screaming, but they had front row. And John just watched them, you know, with that steely 
sort of intent of I'm going to do this. And, uh, and of course, he ended up playing with Paul McCartney, you know. But I think the Beatles, from whenever, whenever I can remember growing up in the household, always the Beatles would go on, you know. So he, he really did love them. And he loved harmony and melody. He loved the Everly Brothers. He absolutely adored James Brown and all the Motown guys, you know. There was a whole lot of music. He had a real eclectic mix. But melody and soul seemed to be a real important part for him. I mean, Bee Gees as well, you know. Right. Um, and Stephen Stills, big Buffalo Springfield fan, big Hendrix fan. There was all, he had a real eclectic mix. But I think what he drew on, uh, he'd have all these melodies that he loved, but he loved the soul and the funk. Um, and, of course, his heroes in drumming were Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. So, yeah, of course. You know, he'd draw on, on that. He used to play Gene Krupa all the time, you know, because my mom and dad were big band fans, so they right. had Benny Goodman playing. They, they, we had a lot of music in the house of big bands. Uh, so John really started with that, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a trait that, that all four members of the band really you know share in a lot of ways you know an eclecticism yeah. in terms of the music that they loved and and you know got into and as a result that made up the band's sound mark let's yeah. come back to you and as a man who in 1979 was entrenched in a world of uh, well teenage heavy metal let's be honest Absolutely, i mean yeah. you, you and me both <laughs> but my my question really is this is that what music did led zeppelin turn you on to because as you say listening to cashmere you know, as, as a child, you suddenly go, you know, as we, we're discussing, it is like, what, what is this? This is from a different place. This isn't like dealing with the meat and potatoes music that we kind of grew up with naively. This is music from a different yes. dimension almost. Yeah. And, of course, it leads to other things. So what did you discover as a result of, of I, Led Zeppelin I, as a fan? It was from Led Zeppelin 3, because we all got into Led Zeppelin 3, which, of course, certainly completely different from 2 and 1. And it, the songs I loved, the most on the album, I mean, other than obviously the immigrant soul, but things like Tangerine, yeah, oh, and yeah. that's the way. Yeah, yeah. Tangerine yeah. apparently is Peter Grant's favourite Led, one of Peter Grant's yeah. favourite Led Zeppelin songs. There you go, it's well, absolutely mine. Apparently so, for well, one of them anyway. But th I think that acoustic stuff it, it yeah. got me listening to other things, and from there it was it was things like Crosby, Stills, Nash, and stuff. And bear yeah. in mind, this is like we're talking 1980, 81, 79, 80, 81. This stuff wasn't hit then you know and you couldn't sample it so you're in second-hand record shops like you know whatever the west london equivalent was for your lps in bexley heath you know you're digging around in the bins there and coming up with crosby stills nash stuff so that it was the acoustic funny enough it was the acoustic stuff that i listened to that's yeah. that's what zeppelin turned me on to which is obviously the complete opposite of what a lot of people remember them we all think of them because of the loud powerful stuff but th there was so much power in that acoustic music and all that stuff on side three and four of physical graffiti you know they were big fans of, of, of bands like Fairport mm. convention and and things like that so you know i guess a lot of that was coming through as well so it uh yeah i agree with you totally on that yeah that but that's what it did with me and which which is surprising yeah. thinking about it now but that's definitely where it came from I genuinely think they were just the conduit to uh, to other music. That's the thing as well. Mm. You know, there's there's so much of that that, that for me that's that's how it was. Um, Dave, I'm, I'm not going to ask you exactly the same question because that would be quite boring to be honest with you. Um, but uh, when you were speaking to to Jimmy and Robert and, and Jonesy about you know for, for for the new book, what music reared its head as far as their recollections of the early days? Uh, you know, how, how did they feel about the music that they themselves drew on and what did they discuss with you? Some of which, of course, will be in the book, but I'm sure a large swathes of it won't be. 
they actually spoke a lot about everything, but we had to edit it down. But, you know, it, the focus was very much on the work. And for all the stories and myths and legends, when you look through the book, their workload was incredible. And I think uh, John Paul Jones makes a comment about a day off, but it wasn't a day off because they were in the studio. They were just absorbing whatever music was around and that they'd listened to. And, and you can hear that. It was just all coming out. And there was no restrictions or no... Just everything was open. I think that I think I think it's John Paul Jones said that everything was open and just whatever they felt like doing. And if it worked, they carried on. And if it didn't, they... Yeah, binned it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, De- De- Deborah, let's just come back to you and discuss how the band's... So how how they evolve musically as well, because obviously, you know, from you seeing them as you say as a as a as a sort of you know eight year old uh, through mm-hmm. to to the end of the band. I mean, they they did evolve and they worked as 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 David said uh, an incredible speed. Um, yeah. How did you view that evolution as a as a small child, and and more significantly, how did how did, did I mean I presume John would have discussed things with you at various times, you know, as you say, you were a tight yeah. family unit. How, how did he view the evolution of the band? Really, I mean, the one thing that uh, that sticks in my mind, every time there was an acetate, you know, a, a new album coming out, he'd come back with the test pressings. And it would just be the sheer excitement that he would play it with, you know. Um, from when Led Zeppelin II came out, he came back um, and he got the test pressing. And he was just so thrilled that in the middle of what is and what should never be could pan from left to right, you know, on the speakers. And he was just stood there going, just listen to this, listen to what we did, you know, <laughs> with this boyish, um, absolute, uh, you know, enthusiasm and, and just thrilled with what they'd achieved. And then later on, as I was growing, growing up um, and getting into my teenage years, I spent quite a bit of time in France with him because I, I, I was speaking pretty fluent French at school and uh, John was out in, in France and said oh you know do you want to come out and spend the summer holidays and you can translate for me so it was it was lovely we went out there and um, and it was around about the time that they'd been filming Song Remains the Same so he got into a conversation about um, the whole sequences of what they were doing so the, the how they'd ad- adapted uh, a lot of the songs to, to you know for live and yeah. gone into these sequences and again it was that same massive enthusiasm and an incredible um uh, i mean he was just really in awe of what the band was achieving um and especially with jimmy he he said to me you know he has the most incredible ideas and what he's doing and he'd play again we'd ha- have the test pressings and he'd play it and we'd sit there and, and of course it's you know it's greatly moved on they're now going into these incredible segments it's uh, it was just progressing all the time and um i think it yeah i mean i don't think there was ever a point where we sat and went well that doesn't work yeah yeah <laughs> that, ne- that just never <laughs> happened i mean every time it came out john would come and play it and every time he would bring the the, the test pressings and we'd listen I always managed to get in there somehow to listen. I'd quietly sneak in if it was just him and my brother, Michael, you know. I'd sneak in and make sure I got a, an earful of it. And uh, I'm so thrilled I did because, you know, it was, uh, I, was, I, I was very privileged to have been part of listening to all of that in those days. 
Absolutely. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to ask you something really unfair now. So if, <laughs> if, if, if push comes to shove, yeah. what is Led Zeppelin's greatest album? Do you know, it's an impossible, uh, it's impossible for me to answer it because growing up with it, um, every time, and of course it was always vinyl, so every time the new album came out, and they were really prolific as well, you know, so they were, they oh, were yeah. coming fa fast and furiously each year. And so when the new album would come out, you'd just have these killer new songs. Now you'd lived with, let's say, Led Zeppelin 1, which in my opinion, you play today, and it's, it, it still sounds, I mean, it's, it blows me away, Led Zeppelin 1. I guess I do keep going back to that just for the sheer, the, the, the sound of it, you know, and the impact of good times, bad times, and the, the, the drumming. I mean, I don't think anybody was ever really doing triplets on a, on a drum pedal like that, you know. So that album still always gets me. But, you know, living with that album and then Led Zeppelin II would come out. And, of course, you'd spend weeks just listening to Side One, you know, before you, before you totally knew Side One inside out. Then you'd go to Side Two. And every single album for me had its killer tracks, you know. So, and I loved, you know, I totally agree. I loved it when they did the acoustic stuff. Um, and that led me into listening to more Fairport Convention, to listening to Sandy Denny, especially Joni Mitchell. John was a big fan of Joni, so it led me into all that type of music. I wouldn't know. Physical Graffiti, one of the greatest albums. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin Four, When the Levee Breaks and Go to California. Ah, I can't answer it. But I think that's what's interesting, what you were saying about, about John as well and about all the guys in the band. I actually think mm. they were all fans of what they did. Which yeah. is what also comes out in in the book, you know. I mean, it is really absolutely. It, it, it's weird because despite that comment of your brother saying about being flash and and sort of semi boasting, <laughs> there isn't any yeah. boasting from them. But they, it's there's admiration, which is a very uh, unique concept. Um, I have to say, I think it's pretty impossible to sum up what Led Zeppelin achieved. Uh, that in itself is almost a conversation that could last well a few days, maybe weeks. But um, <laughs> let, let's try and get another one of uh, their famous fans to tackle that very subject. Here is a man who does indeed hail from the land of the ice and snow, or uh, Stockholm to be precise, a city where the band were once uh, forced to mime their way through a version of Communication Breakdown in 1969, which is quite possibly why they didn't really take to doing uh, television uh, particularly. Uh, this is Joey Tempest of Europe fame. Jimmy just understood how to take it further, to have a cool band, to have cymbals, to have a great singer, to have a package, to have something that people will run to see, gather around, and it'll be like a movement, a revolution. He didn't do that on purpose, but he had it, and he dreamt it, and he did it, and uh, that became Led Zeppelin, and we've been so lucky to share the earth with them, that's for sure. Dave, Dave uh, let, let's come back to you about the idea of legacy and Led Zeppelin, because I suppose that is what is enshrined in, in, in the book itself. Um, uh, having spoken to all three members of the band as you edited what is a visual autobiography um, and worked on the reissue campaigns, how do you think they each view the idea of legacy itself? Because it's a loaded word, isn't it? If, we, if we're looking at the book, just the sheer volume of work, the amount they did in a short amount of time. I mean, I had to constantly check dates because I couldn't believe that we're a hundred pages in and we're still only six months in. Yeah. You know, and they've done so much. And um and that really is 
I knew I know bands worked hard and sometimes two gigs a day and all that, but this is just another level. And not just working hard, but improving constantly. Everything was getting better and better and better to the point where there there isn't anyone that can touch them for live, even after all that time and doing the O2. From everyone I spoke to who'd seen them before, who had a, a preconceived idea of how that O2 show might be, it was just uh, as powerful and had moved on. And I think yeah. that's the, the thing that they kept doing and they had no real interest in looking back at the time. And now it, it, I, I suppose it must be, whatever way they look at it, it must be quite difficult because it's such a, a solid body of work in, in a period of time, in a very short period of time if you think about it. Yeah. Um, that um, I, know, I think maybe that's another reason why they were happy to do the book. So it would explain it for them. You can You can see it and you can read it. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, on, on, on top of that, you have got the fact that, you know, the finality of, of the band, as it were, as you pointed out, I mean, it wasn't meant to end that way. And, and of course, you know, it, it's very painful as a result, you know. Um, but within that sort of um, unbelievable ascent, you know, which they went through, which is really quite phenomenal, when you, as you say, the speed, the volume of work. Um, Mark, I'm just going to ask you a question, really, because, you know, in writing um, the Peter Grant biography, clearly you were able to analyse the manner in which Led Zeppelin, during that period of time, actually changed the music industry itself, as well as, you know, creating this unbelievable body of work. Because what they did do and what Peter did was was literally change the rule yes. of the game. Yeah, absolutely. How would you, you know, describe those changes? Because, you know, we, we've joked about it, but, but they are very finite in terms of the way in which things did develop as they, as they continued to power through, as it were. Well, I think, first of all, going, taking it to America was a huge thing because Peter and, and Jimmy Page had seen this with the Yardbirds, that there was a market there for them to exploit and, you know, that were into the idea of album music. So they yeah. spotted that. I mean, I was shocked when you go and look at the amount of touring they did, like Dave said. And this is touring at a basic level with, a, you know, a van, a U-Haul truck. Nobody had a credit card. That was a massive problem for all of them when they were first out there. So, you know, they somehow they got themselves backwards and forwards up and down the country, touring and touring, and you just see the venues get bigger and bigger as it, as it starts to take off. It's, it's road work, the likes of which we don't see. And then, obviously comes sort of i think it's 72 they hit them with the double whammy of the the 90 10 split which of course means that the band got 90 percent and the promoter got 10 and they cut out the agent and i think that's sort of industry standardish now but you can't underestimate what a huge deal that was at the time and obviously they made a lot of enemies as a result of that and peter did make enemies and you know after that, it, you know, things did become perhaps become a little difficult on the business side because that was unprecedented. But to do that, suddenly you've got a band that's creating this fabulous music, they're selling a huge number of records, selling concert tickets, and then it's like, we own this thing. And yeah. people underestimate now that that, that wasn't the, the way things were done then. You know, you suddenly brought all the power came to Led Zeppelin, and obviously Peter Grant was instrumental in doing that. Nothing without the music, of course. You can't underestimate that. But I think it was that thing that he did. He built a wall around the band. You do the music, I will take care of everything else, and it became very, very powerful. You've got this... They're almost like an army, but it gets to sort of 75, and you think, how much bigger is this going to get? You know, and they were... You forget how absolutely huge they were... 
yeah. that time. And obviously it, it became it made an enormous amount of money. And, you know, with that comes greed and jealousy and people making themselves busy, wanting a piece of it. But that, you know, what he achieved on their behalf was was incredible. And everything, merchandising, controlling, trying to control bootlegging. I mean, you know, it's a, a losing battle now with the internet. But, you know, even at that time, he wanted, he had everything covered. The idea was we control everything. We bring this to you, to the audience. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's the seeds of the sort of, uh, you know, band as a brand. Not that anybody, yes, not that anybody in the band ever looked at it no, that way. No, they wouldn't have looked at it that way. But you it know. was, and I think we, we've all talked about the album covers. I mean, this is a huge part of this as well. We were all drawn to Zeppelin because of these LP covers because they didn't have the name on the cover. They didn't have a photograph after, the, I think, the first one. Uh, or not for not for a while, I did in the third. But, you know, later on it starts to look mysterious and that's a very powerful thing. And I think that was something that, that Peter and, and Jimmy Page were very quick to spot and to exploit, you know, to make the most of. As you say, album culture is, is really the, the key there. It well, is the know, key. The rise to, of yeah. album culture. So, totally. Well. Will we be played on, you know, American radio stations that yeah. play five or six minute songs? We won't do singles. Yeah. All of this stuff it made, you know, the time... I remember hearing Led Zeppelin don't do singles. That yeah. made them immediately mysterious and interesting to uh, me of course. and powerful. And I think also um, there's a, a a quality control here that they didn't give anyone anything until they were happy with it. So the, the tapes were handed over when mm. the band were yeah. 100% happy and the label would be chomping at the bit and you've got to have a picture on the cover and you've got to have your yeah. name on it. And there's correspondence you see where the label are just banging their heads against the wall because this band want to put an album out with a mysterious picture and no title mm. and with no release date and things like that. But it just meant that everything that came out was fantastic. Uh, I have to be honest with you. So we could we could continue talking for, well, as I said, a, f- a few more days, but I think we're, we're almost out of time. So, Deborah, I'm going to ask you one final question. And again, mm-hmm. it's a very difficult one to answer, so I apologise in advance. But um, I'm going to ask you to really, as someone who saw a lot of it firsthand, yeah. how would you describe Led Zeppelin's musical legacy? Led Zeppelin's legacy, uh, it's I think to have created that body of work for a start off um, and to be able to have the effect that it's had on many, many people throughout their lives, people where that music will, you know, got them through hard times or did, whatever it, it, it did to inspire people. And the fact that their legacy has been to inspire musicians, kids, bands, wherever, it, it, it's inspired them to pick up, you know, listening to John Bonham, they've picked up the, the drumsticks. Listening to Jimmy Page, they've picked up a guitar, John Paul Jones bass, Robert Plant, they wanted to be Robert Plant and sing like him. I think that's an incredible legacy. It, it's, it's inspired people. And for me, that will always be their legacy, the inspiration that they've created um, for everyone, not just within the music industry, but for everyone that hears them. They inspire. Our thanks to Dave Brolin, Mark Blake, Deborah Bonham and Phil Alexander. You've been listening to Led Zeppelin Legacy on the Classic Album Club podcast. <laughs>